Hello, we're here with an Hour from Tower podcast with, uh, dare I say, one of the icons of the St. Scholastica community, our volleyball coach, Coach Dana Moore. Dana, thanks for being here today. I'm happy to be here. Thank yeah, you for the, having me. The inaugural guest on the Hour from po- Tower podcast. I said I needed to, to search and find out the most dynamic person on campus, and you're the first person that came to mind. Thank you. <laughs> well, good to have you here today. You know, this podcast is new, and as I had said, you know, we're, we're really just going to introduce folks to people on the St. Scholastica community and delve into their stories a little bit. I just find people's stories amazing, where they've come from, how they've gotten to where they're at, their leadership um, uh, journey uh, throughout their life and just their life journey. So hopefully we'll have some fun here today and uh, and get to know you a little bit better and let the listeners get to know you a little bit better. So let's start first with, this is fascinating to me, I'm, I would imagine the, the, the beaches of Duluth are a heck of a lot different than the beaches in California. You're a Californian by by uh, by by birth, right? So t- t- tell me a little bit about your journey getting to Duluth. So I was raised in Manhattan Beach, California, about six miles south of the Los Angeles airport. And interestingly enough, when I moved to Duluth, it reminded me very much of home, a smaller community, a lot of community. And I, I, I don't think I was ever really a beach girl. Uh, my mom always said that. I started working at the age of 16 um, and didn't just love the ocean, uh, but I loved the freedom of growing up in the 60s. And when it came to college, I'm a first gen, and I was basically told and kind of heard in my head that I would be going to college. And my grandmother was, uh, she read palms, and she always said that I was never ever going to stay in one place, or at least not in California. So the journey for college, I started in the northernmost part of California and at Humboldt State, and so kept working my way down in applying for colleges, and applied and got accepted in many, but um, was going to go to Long Beach State, about 20 minutes from home. Well, my senior year, I was playing in a volleyball tournament in Hawaii. It's a huge tournament that is still held to this day. And I came home early, another teammate and I had to come home early. And when I got home, there was a packet of information from Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. And as I was going through it, there was something that just rang very true. And when my mom got home, she had coached us. So she was with the rest of the team. And she said, well, we can't afford this. This is 2,000 miles from home. And I said, I will find a way. So an admissions counselor came out. And that's how I got to the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I had to work my way there through a very long story. But... I got off a bus in Columbia, Missouri and walked on the campus and called my mother and father collect and said, I, I've been here before. I, I, this is where I need to be. And it was the, one of the best decisions I made. And uh, four years later, I, I, I just it was just home for me. Yeah. I, I felt like I was had been there before. Yeah. And so that's what brought me to the Midwest, which is then what brought me to Duluth, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So in a roundabout way, my husband uh, got transferred up here, took a promotion up here, and that's what brought us here. But interestingly enough, I had worked as a summer camp counselor in Bemidji for six summers, and I had been to Duluth. Um, We had taken tour trips over here. In addition, my senior year in high school, 
our national team traveled to Duluth for the USAV National Tournament, of which I got to come with them. And so it was meant to be to come to Duluth. Yeah. And and, and why coaching? Like, I, again, kind of that's your path to Duluth, but, you know, how did you land a coach? Because I know you did some work outside of coaching for a few years for the city of Duluth as Correct. well, right? Yeah. Correct. So, so I came home in seventh grade and said to my mom, and my mom was a volleyball player, and said, Jamie Lewis's dad is going to coach us in a league. And my mom looked up from what she was doing, and she said, not without me. <laughs> and so my mom and this man, this dad, coached us. And basically, my mom did the coaching, and he kind of managed us, put us in the back of a station wagon, hauled us all over Southern California. And so when I went to college, I was an elementary ed major, and it's a question that I will always ask of people, I knew at the age of nine that I wanted to teach. I would come home each summer and I would set up, you know, school in the backyard. So I started out as an elementary ed major, but started playing volleyball. And it the, the something just clicked that I needed to go into coaching. So I switched into health and physical education and recreation my junior year and ended up starting my career at a high school in Missouri and worked my way through. But coaching jobs, you know, it wasn't something that was an easy path, um, especially when we moved up here. And you're right, I did some work for the city. Um, but when I when we got here, you know, you you get lost on this campus and you see this castle and you think, I, I, I need to know more about that. Well, at the time, our academic dean, who since became our president, Larry Goodwin, lived up the street from me. And I would see advertisements for admissions counselors and thinking, oh, I, I could sell that college. And lo and behold, um, a coaching position became available and it was an assistant position and I interviewed and got hired or was offered the job and I declined it. I just didn't feel like at the time it was the right fit. And then a few years later, um, the position became available again and I came in as an assistant coach under um, a, a dear friend of mine that we had played a lot of volleyball with up here in Duluth and it was her sister. She was an All-American at UMD in basketball, mm -hmm. uh, but she brought us in really as the volleyball gurus. That wasn't her strength and mm -hmm. so that's how I got here. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so, you know, now you sit back and you, you think about that, right? I mean, maybe it, you stumbled into it a little bit here and now 430 plus wins later, right? Talk a bit about, you know, the game of volleyball and, and the, you know, how, how it's changed, how you've had to change. Um, we'll talk a little bit about how players and parents and families have changed, but talk a little bit about the game. Has it changed a lot? What, what's changed if something has changed about it? So when I first started playing, there were very specific rules. So you think about the center line in on the volleyball court underneath the net. We weren't allowed to even touch that line with our feet. And then it was you could have the front of your foot on the line, and that was okay. And then it was you could be over the line so long as your heel was on the other side of the line. So some of those kinds of things. And now it's you can be under that net, but you just can't be in a situation where you might cause harm to an opponent. So that's how that's called. Um, we call a, a tip, it was called a dink back in the day, and it's where you open hand the ball over the net. And when I first started playing, you had to be square on. You couldn't move your wrist either direction. 
Well, because I played against uh, Canadian teams when I was in um, high school, we got to be the pre-match before our Olympic team would play the Japanese team. And this Canadian team came down. This is back in the late 60s. Nothing like this was happening for girls or women. And so when we played a Canadian team, because it was now international rules, we could move our wrist, and that's the only time you could. So um, when I think about the game being regular scoring versus rally scoring, I remember when it happened, we were over at Superior for a tournament. Also, the let serve came in where it would hit the top of the tape and go in, and that was is considered now a point. And I remember the referee saying, oh, this isn't going to happen very often at all. And it happened... And it still happens all the time. Yeah. Still my least favorite rule change. Yeah, yeah. The job is to get the ball over the net, not hit the net. Yeah, right. So right. Um, so that's how the game is played. And and then the libero, um, yeah. the, the, the woman, in our case a girl, a woman, uh, in a different colored jersey, um, there are rules for her. She comes in and out. She has to come out one, one full rotation, um, but she can't hit in front of the 10-foot line. She can't set the ball overhead in front of the 10-foot line. Mm-hmm. But it's been a great addition because they are a defensive specialist gets, that gets to stay on the court for five and a half rotations. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. You know, you talked about your your experience of going off to school and you know, I just find it so interesting, right? You got on a bus, you ended up in Missouri, um, you, you know, you, you you call home, collect, right? No cell phones, none mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff, right? Um, and you know, very similar for me as well, right? I mean, I think my parents dropped me off at school. I didn't go across the country to school, but dropped me off, said, go learn something so you can support us, and that was it, right? Mm -hmm. That recruiting game, that student-athlete mentality, I'm sure has changed a lot. Um, Maybe talk both from, because you've done some club sport recruiting or coaching as well um, at the the high school level. How How has that changed you sports? The How has that changed the athlete that you're recruiting? The, the parents, because you recruit the whole family. Talk a little bit about that process from year one mm-hmm. <laughs> to today, how that recruiting process has changed. It, um, I guess it has changed in that there are so many options to see kids today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think about my own experience that there wasn't a lot of options for us. But to, to think back, even when I was coaching at the high school level, Parents were overly involved back then, and I remember thinking, I can't believe they're questioning something that I'm doing. Um, and as a young coach, we all make mistakes, and we make you know a bad decision or two. And my probably worst decision, but there was a reason behind it, was that I wouldn't let the kids wear knee pads. I was coming to a really small, tiny program where they were taught to drop on to their knees. And I tried to explain to them how unhealthy that was, but that we, I was going to teach them to dive on the floor and to roll. And when I did that, I had some, some parent pushback. Um, but the recruiting piece, you know, it's a little bit different each and every year because at Division three. You want to keep a balance. You want there to be some kids who reach out to you that you know aren't going to be the best athlete, but they have a heart of gold. They want to be involved with the sport. So I have always, over the years, taken kids that may not ever step on a court, and I've always been pretty honest with them to say that. 
We don't promise playing time. Um, however, you know, there there's a process. And so we want those kids that, that still have the love of the game and they want to be so involved with team sports and they are that team player. But yeah, so a lot of times we start our recruiting, um, you know, via email. Um, I still do snail mail. I think it's important that you write a handwritten note that they know it is me, that it's not just something, um, and a phone call. And so I, I give them an entire spiel about our program from start to finish. And oftentimes it is that connection with the parent that is made. I think that Anytime a child is going away from home or a new venture, there's always a little apprehension by the, the parents. And I think that letting them be a part of this process, and one of my statements is always that to a, a 17, 18-year-old young woman, this is the first major decision you are going to make along with your family to find out if we are the best fit. So yes, we, we, I always want to have a phone conversation or an on-campus visit with a parent so that they get the feel of what our program is all about. Sometimes, you know, if you're just speaking with the athlete, then there are things that are lost in translation. And so I always want that family to hear everything that we are doing. Um, but recruiting hasn't changed that much in that, well, I take that back, a lot more film. We see a lot more film. We don't have to drive nearly as far because we can see so much on film. The piece that misses, that we miss sometimes on film is the personality, um, the family. I remember walking into a gym down in the Twin Cities and I was recruiting a young woman and I remember she was on the court and she yelled across to her mother, get me my water bottle. Mm -hmm. And I thought, ooh, I, I need to be aware of this. Mm -hmm. So some of those kind of things that you see when you're at a club tournament versus a high school tournament, a lot of times small high schools, maybe their team isn't as good, and you wonder about that athlete, how they handle that they're the best on the team and how do they treat the rest of their teammates. Yeah. Whereas when you get into club volleyball, then a lot of times the um, – the talent level is a little more similar. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting you say, you know, this access and you can see student athletes play so much more. I noticed with my own kids as well, from my oldest who's almost 25 now to my youngest who's 18, just how youth sports and the proliferation of the youth sports has changed so much. In your opinion, right, just in your opinion, is that explosion of youth sports, do you think that's a positive or a negative? I have doubts just with the intensity and the expectations and the pressures and the pressures parents feel and sometimes, you know, living vicariously through their kids and wanting to push them more. And I would even have to say sometimes I was guilty of that with my own kids. What, what's your thoughts on that? I think it's a, 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 a two-edged sword that can be great. Uh, I believe that it's important that when I get an athlete, I would like them to be well-rounded and maybe have played another sport or participated in other sports. A lot of times there are cues that you can give that they might not understand from a volleyball standpoint, but for example, a layup in basketball is similar to a, 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 
a thing that we call the slide in volleyball. It's a one-footed approach or a one-footed takeoff. And so we can talk about that. Um, we rely a lot on our core and our hips. And so we talk about having to really use that core and the hip to get over and on top of the volleyball when you're spiking it. So I think about a softball player when they turn and open up their hips when they hit and that ball, you know, as they're opening to the field and that ball goes where the bat ends up going but where their hips are. And so I will use some of those analogies in another sport um, if they've played it. Um, you know, triple jumpers and high jumpers um, in track and field, you know, we get a lot of kids that have, have done jumping because of volleyball being such a jump sport. So I, I think that it's a negative when you are overly involved in, in all aspects as a family, you know, you have to gather up all the family and go on these long weekends. And sometimes I think that that, that can be a negative. Um, and I, I think it's all about the balance. Um, there are kids out there who club is everything because that's where you're going to be recruited more often than not. And sometimes I think the pressure to perform at the club level versus the pressure to perform at the high school level are two very different things. Yeah. Years ago, um, well, when the bridge collapsed, um, I was going back and forth to a tournament down there. And I have a friend who runs her own club in Southern California. She was coaching the 14s, so I went to her court to see her. And there were probably five to eight Division One coaches there. And I thought to myself, these young girls are 14 years old. And, you know, women's bodies will change dramatically between the ages of 14 and 18. So it's interesting to see how that kind of coaching takes place, that kind of recruiting takes place at Division One, a little bit different than at Division Three. Yes. Uh, uh young woman at my son's old uh, school um, back in Wisconsin, um, you know, verbally um, committed as an eighth grader to play volleyball. And I, I just found that fascinating, you know, wonderful, wonderful for her family mm -hmm. and school. But, you know, the pressure that goes along now the next four years, <laughs> as as you say, people change, bodies change, all of that. Is Absolutely. Just I, I agree with yeah. you. You know, you mentioned the word family. And what, what I admire, you know, and I've been around a lot of programs, I've just really been blessed with being around athletic programs. And what I can already witness, and I'm relatively new here at St. Scholastica, but what I can witness with, with your team is that sense of family. You kind of sit at the head of that family, right? I mean, you're you're the you're the parent, but you know, I, I, what I always find fascinating with people is they think coaches show up, throw some volleyballs on the court, and you play, right? And that's it. But you're a parent, you're a counselor, you're a mentor, you're a um, I don't know relationship. You give a relationship. I mean, you do so many different roles. Um, Talk to me a bit about, and maybe it goes back to setting up those classrooms in your backyard, right, and being a teacher. But what what things what things do you look forward to in that regard, in that role? And are there some things that you've had to work at over the years to make yourself a better, I, I would say, you know, in this case, matriarch of your program? I it is interesting. You know, I started college coaching late. I came in as an assistant at the age of forty, and I knew right away there was probably some judgment going on because the two women I were coaching with were, you know, a decade younger than I was. Yeah. So when I took the head position, I always thought, 
you know, that parents at that point were right around my age. And so as I have been here for 20 plus years, I am way older than the parents of today. And in some ways, I think it's been a really good thing that parents have a certain trust with me. And I think that comes from age, wisdom, maturity, whatever, you know, label you want to put there. But yes, you, you have to it was a lot easier to build relationships early on. And I have had groups of women alums and we are in very close contact. I do find that it has been more daunting over the course of the last handful of years. And I think part of it has been the pandemic. I I see a change this year. My incoming freshmen are very um, extroverted but they want to be near us as coaches they want to take pictures they want to know about our lives and i think that with the pandemic we got away from that a little bit because of having to mask we had to keep our distance there was only a certain amount of kids that could be in the locker room at a certain time we were positioned on the bus we were positioned on the bench so i think that has changed but i think each and every year when I think back, it is trying to get those young women between the ages of 18 and 22 to understand the lifelong friendship and connection that they will be making and have made. And I look back to my own college years that I had, there were six or seven of us very close. To this day, other than pandemic, we travel at least every other year and we get together. And it's like right back to being in a dorm room. So that experience that I brought was so much about my college experience and being a first gen and having these amazing opportunities in front of me to travel across the Midwest and go to a place that I didn't know existed on the on the map. We, we were kind of we're kind of full of ourselves in California. <laughs> you know, we grew up with the ocean and this amazing weather and those kind of things. So I had a, a lot of amazing experiences. So I think that each and every year I just want to so impart on them that connection of of their teammates and their coaches and the college and that it goes by so quickly Mm -hmm. and not to have any regrets to leave it all out there my coaching philosophy is steeped in the benedictine value so each value i have a an area that we talk about and it i want those young women to leave this institution and know that that has helped shape them and the thing that scholastica has always talked about is critical thinking skills i find the world doesn't have very many of them right now and so we talk about having to use critical thinking skills so i think that we are such a Uh, uh, just an amazing institution that we are not value neutral that we have a set of values and we should be living by them and it should play into our lives even when we walk out after four years yeah and you've kind of touched on this i was going to ask you next you know and i and i think you've started down this path already but you know you mentioned even to being a small community you know gal and and liking that i mean obviously that fits in really well here but um but you could do this work anywhere. I mean, you, you, you're accomplished. You, you long ago could have decided, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else. And I'm going to do this work. Why do you, why, why do you stay? I mean, what, what, what keeps you here? I, you know, maybe the community and part of this, the Benedictine values certainly are mm-hmm. some of that. But are there other things? So when I first came here, they, they didn't do the um, 
you know, where you walk around the the introduction. So I didn't learn those values until a little bit later. And I all I could think of is these are this doesn't have to do with having to be Catholic or a certain religious religion. This happens to be a way to live your life. So those Benedictine values became very important in my own life. But the people here and people say it all the time, but the people here come here, they stay here for some intangible reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will give you that example. I mean, my children, I would have to say to them each and every August, you understand that you are the most important thing in my life. <laughs> yes, mom, we do. But right now my volleyball team is more imperative. Mm-hmm. So they were always put on the back burner from mid-August to mid-November. They literally had to do and deal with dad because I was gone. So, you know, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but my husband was diagnosed with ALS, and I couldn't imagine a better place to be when we went through the ALS journey. After we made the announcement about him, there was not a day that went by that five people did not stop me and say, how are you? How's Jim? How are your children? It was just an incredible place to be. And I'll tell you an amazing story, and it makes me very teary to repeat it. But we had people, we, we went from a, a you know, two, three-level house to an all-one-level house and put out some feelers. So Wells Patton, our tennis coach, and his wife, Gretchen, very dear friends, um, they spearheaded the, the painting of this house. So Scholastica people and community people came into our home and painted every square inch of it. And then when that was finished, the department, the athletic department, shows up at our house and moves us from one house to another. Athletes, coaches, directors, all sorts of people. My daughter was in college at the time playing soccer, and I remember she walked in and said, Mom, it is a great day to be a saint. Hmm. And I said, you're right. It is. This is why this is why working here, this is why spending my career here has been so important because people will have your back. Hmm. They will engage you in conversation. They will want to get to know you. And I mean, going through that journey was was pure hell. And to have a community behind me to go through that was phenomenal. Yeah, and I think there's something to that. And again, you know, there's going to be people listening to this from, you know, all walks of life and all different backgrounds. But having been in and around small schools and and, and small private schools, religious-based schools, you know, there is just something a little special. And until you've... Until you've been a part of it and experienced it, you just don't know. <laughs> it's hard to put in a brochure. It's mm-hmm. hard to put on a website. But um, yeah, the, the, I mean, it's it's the people. And I'm going to come back to Al's. I want to talk a little bit more about how folks can support, you know, again, research and other things with Al's. So we'll come back. We'll come back to that. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit here. You know, we've been talking a lot, and we're still going to probably go back into St. Scholastica and things. But, um, And I swear I'm not a stalker, but um, your license plate says attitude on it. That can mean a lot of different things. What does it mean to you? What does attitude mean to you? Attitude is everything. Um, And it it started years ago um, with the the statement positive mental attitude of working that way working that statement into coaching and staying positive in your life i mean you get 
you know, it's right up there with godliness and cleanliness, you know, mm-hmm. it's everything. Mm-hmm. And, and it's how you just define yourself and it's how you decide you're going to live your life in the world. And, you know, we could have been grumpy and angry and sad over the ALS journey and other areas of your life that, you know, fall apart. But I think it's it has to be that way. So my husband and I, had, we had different cars um, and he had said, do you want to stick with this car or do you want to drive this car? And I thought it was an odd question. I said, I want to stick with this car. So he had the plates made for me and he couldn't fit the actual full word on it. And he couldn't fit part of the word on it because it spelled an inappropriate. um, And that's what they told him at the DMV. So he had to come up with a whole different thing. So it's A-D-A-T-U-D-E. And we have a a former um, instructor on campus who always brought that up in a class, something about my license plate. And so, yes, I I love it. Um, I I think that you have to be positive in life. You have to have a good attitude. Sometimes I worry on the freeway that if people look at it and they're thinking, is she, you know, this kind of an attitude, you know, with the finger pointing kind of thing. And I'm hoping that people don't look at my license plate that way and look at it more than I'm looking for positive mental attitude. Yeah. You know, as you talk about this, I look over your shoulder and I see there, I have a sign in my office that says attitude is everything. Pick a good one Mm -hmm. right because again I think that does drive so much you know with the intensity of your work and again I think this is another misnomer right it's like oh you're a coach right Um, but it's I mean there's intensity right there I mean there's a ton of responsibility there are you know 18 to 25 you know young women and their families again counting on you for all of those things that we talked about Um, how do you how do you keep a good attitude again you went through um, you know just a, a, a a gut-wrenching process again with ALS and your husband and things like I'm sure some days had to be harder than others where, where do you how do you how do you how do you keep that attitude how do you go back to on those days that are just you know you want to throat punch somebody mm-hmm. right I mean how do you get to that point I think that I have always had this part of my personality um we talk a lot in my family. My sister is the most talented young woman I know. Um, she has more, uh, she, she just is talented. I didn't get any talent. I got, I got confidence and I got attitude out of the genes mm-hmm. and she got talent. And so I have pretty much been this way my whole life. It is not anything new. It's not anything I had to learn. I've just come by it naturally. Um, But there are days that you think, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. One of those was this past Tuesday when we played volleyball at Eau Claire. (laughs) So frustrated. I feel like in some ways I gave up on my team. I walked into a timeout and put chapstick on my lips. I was just so (laughs) irritated. Mm -hmm. And it's that you get to a point where you want your team, the six that are out there and whoever's on the sideline, to take control of the match, the, mm-hmm. the game. We don't always want to be responsible. We want them to be responsible. So I think that's where I get down more than any time is when I can't get them to get to that point. That's probably um, the, the place where I find myself frustrated. 
That being said, you know, you get up the next day, the sun comes up, you take a little break from school, you go home and make spaghetti sauce, you make an apple crisp for practice, mm-hmm. but you you set yourself away from it a little bit mm-hmm. so that you're not in it and you, you have that time to kind of rejuvenate. Mm-hmm. I am a very visual learner, so if I do anything with my team on visualization, I tell them, I need my eyes open. When I go into a room and someone says, okay, we're going to close our eyes. We're going to get in that Zen moment. Not me, Nate. <laughs> I, um, I need to go you know, pretty hard and fast, 90 miles an hour all the time. My, that's kind of where I get my Zen is going through that. I don't like being calm. I don't like you know, that you know, guru moment. It's just not who I am. So I have to be aware of personalities. And that's probably something that's really changed over the years from a coaching standpoint is learning about learning kinesthetic, audio, you know, auditory and visual and knowing which kids do that and trying to help them through that. In addition, more introspective internal kids versus those that are more extroverted and external and how we coach them. I can't yell at an introvert unless we've had the the conversation that are you okay if I yell at you and so a lot of times I'll have to go right to them whereas there are others I can yell and say you're not doing this right and they're not offended by that so that that part has changed for me to try to be a little bit more aware of that Um, and and you're right, we, we wear many hats. I have been in more emergency rooms. I have, there has yet to be a season where we didn't have an animal on a, our team that had to be put down or died, uh, a family member, um, an accident of a, of a friend, a suicide. In 26 years of coaching, we have never had a spotless record of there not being some sort of issue. Yeah. I lost an athlete to death. Yeah. Uh, she, her mother, and two other Scholastica kids right before the season started. Mm-hmm. And it was devastating to my team that the, the they were going to be sophomores. That sophomore group was devastated over this loss. Mm-hmm. And I remember we brought them in for counseling and, you know, we talked and I remember them saying, and it hurt my heart, our parents don't understand. And what their parents didn't understand was this connection that they had made with this young woman. They were part of their freshman class and they, they just you know, a, 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 a limb. It was like one of their limbs being torn off from this group of five or six. And so those are the kinds of things that you you have to deal with as a coach. And we've all dealt with it. Every coach in our department, every coach across the country has dealt with those kinds of things. So so you're right. We, we, we wear a hat that has so many different avenues, you know, sticking out of it because we don't just roll a ball out. You know, we are planning meals. We are recruiting. We are putting in a practice plan together. We are dealing with last minute lineups when somebody gets sick on the road. Um, Somebody who, you know, has to stay behind because a family member is getting married, Mm -hmm. you know, all those kind of things. Yeah. And it's so appreciated. Um, You know, I know you 
know this already because I'm sure you get told all the time, but I think back to the coaches that I've had in my life too, and it's been those ones that have done all of those additional things. You know, I grew up in a single parent family and um, especially for me, it was football was my first passion. So my football coaches really became almost like surrogate dads for me. Um, But, you know, I think that that impact that's given and I, you know, I just want people to know uh, and I think throughout my career, again, being connected administratively to athletics to, for, for people to really truly understand all of those different hats that coaches wear. So, um, so it, it's, it's great that you, that, you know, you're right there with you. And I knew I liked you from day one because I'm not a Zen guy either. Don't put me in a room and tell me to visualize, like, I just want to get to work, right? Mm-hmm. Just get after it, slap the floor and get after it. So, um, so I, I knew I liked you right away from the first time I met you. So I'm fascinated by this next piece. I have to ask you about your alter ego. What's that all about? So we took a trip out to California about eight years ago, and we brought some alums along. And um, it was just an amazing trip, and we've repeated it twice, and it's been so much fun. But we got into um, California. I don't know if it was the California vibe, but we were on a ride in Disneyland, and I was scared to death. It was a Ferris wheel, but it's a Ferris wheel that rocked. And I started to growl because it was in a cage like, and I started to growl and I don't know how I named her, but that was Delilah coming out in me. Um, We went to a Starbucks and I remember walking up and they said name and I said Delilah. And so Delilah has been my alter ego that, um, probably isn't as, um, I don't want to say positive because Delilah's positive, but she has kind of a, a, a side tour that might, she might, she might ride a broom. You know, she, <laughs> she, um, she just has this side tour that, that comes out on occasion. And Delilah doesn't come out like usually with my team. Delilah comes out with my alumni group uh-huh. um, and that was with, with me. And so whenever we have repeated this trip, then we do a little segment. Um, my social media director will do a little segment on Delilah and then send that out to the alums that have accompanied <laughs> us in the past. So I don't know where she actually came from she just kind of appeared on a disney ride <laughs> that's so interesting and you know i and you said it doesn't kind of come out with the team or with the alums but i what i've noticed too about really intense coaches over the years too is they're they're different i i always think they're different a lot of them are different when they step on that court or across that line on the field you know they almost turn into a different person but would you say you you're i mean i've watched you coach and you're an intense coach i mean not in a bad way you're i mean you're in it you're in it with them um do you find yourself you know feeling a little bit different is there a different coach dana and a dana dana um not too much. Like I said, at Eau Claire, I, I was really frustrated. I really allowed my my negative emotion to show, which doesn't happen very often. And I had to really get on the kids and said, you know, in timeouts, I just don't know what to do with you. You, you have got to make a decision here that this is where you want to be and this is what you want to do. And I, I stewed about it on the way home and I stewed about it yesterday and I will chat with my team a little bit about it today because I don't want them to ever think I'm giving up on them. But I found myself more frustrated. 
part of that, I think, is I had an incident that happened earlier in the day, and I think I let that carry in, which I don't usually do. I And this is something that we do as a team. They've all been given a rock with their number on it. They put it in the locker room, and I tell them, you leave the rock and whatever you're telling that rock and you leave it in the locker room that we need to come out on the court and we need to be ready to play. And that happens because there has been illness or sickness in their family. There has been stress from from school. There has been stress for whatever other reasons. And so that's where I, I, I didn't leave my rock. I, I brought my rock into the, into the coaching piece. But no, I think I'm pretty much the same, the same person um, when I coach as when I'm not coaching. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. This year, too, um, is the 50th year of Title IX. And, you know, obviously you've, again, seen between your playing days all the way through your coaching years, right, I, uh, changes in women's athletics. Um, still, in my opinion, an awful lot to do mm-hmm. around that. But talk a little bit about you know this reflection year of Title IX and what Title IX has meant to you, has meant to your teams, and you know where from your you know perspective we've made progress and where we still need to make progress. Sure, I lived it. Um, the beauty was I went to a private all women's college, so I wasn't competing with. Uh, I wasn't competing with men for dollars, so to speak. So I didn't feel the effects of it, but I think what I felt the effects of when I looked back on it was um, the way girls were treated in general. And this will tell you how long ago and how long this has sat on my heart. As a sixth grader, fifth or sixth grader, we were playing outside. And in California, you play outside at recess always. And we checked out a football and a group of us were playing and the boys came and took the football. I remember going to the recess monitor and she wouldn't do anything. And her comment was, you don't need to be playing with that football anyway. Mm. So that stuck in my head way back then. Mm -hmm. And so we had, you know, growing up in California, and I think part of it is the weather, we had amazing little mini athletic programs for girls. In seventh and eighth grade, we had every sport that we played. We had an amazing physical education teacher. And we played sports at all recesses. We played before class. We played at lunch. We played after school in after school programming. And so that would have been way back in mid to late 60s and it's incredible when I think about those opportunities so I kind of grew up thinking that I I had the opportunity then I went to an all women's college where we were empowered to be women and we were we marched on the steps of Jefferson City um, Missouri and we were told that we could do anything in this private all women's college and so I grew up thinking I can do anything so I never Never let anything get in my way. I said for a long time, I think it was not until I was about 40 that I ever got turned down for a job. And I was stunned when I didn't get the job, you know, kind of a thing. So so watching that play out and then coming from a family, like I said, my mom coached us all during junior high and high school. She took us to Canada twice. She took us to Hawaii. And the incredible thing was, Nate, when we look back on that, we had no permission slips. We didn't have a medical record. And my mom 
never met in person some of the parents of these girls that she coached. And she took us thousands of miles away and nobody cared. So very different kind of, you know, growing up. But when you look at Title IX and you look at the opportunities for women, I can only be grateful and thankful that it has occurred. But I do think that there's always room for growth and you have to figure out how that growth impacts everybody around you. And it was really an amazing experience. Amy Bergstrom put together for us uh, our women coaches in a Zoom call that was really uh, monitored very well, and um, it was we we had a lot of people listening to us speak, and just to hear the differences of my experiences to younger coaches in the department who have known nothing but Title IX, and they had every opportunity growing up to do so many things. So it it is really uh, an amazing thing to be a part of and to look back and be aware of so much that wasn't and that so much that now is is pretty special yeah and i'm always amazed you know and again reflecting back to you know that it's only been 50 years <laughs> i mean i it's i don't know shocking saddening i don't know what the right adjective is but it's you know 50 years right in my lifetime we've had to actually be intentional about allowing women to have the same opportunities. It's just crazy to me. So, again, you've been such a catalyst, I think, over the years, not only here, but in, I think, the region and the country on Title IX. And I think, again, it's just the attitude, right? I can do anything. And I tell you, if I'm starting a football team, I'm not taking the football away from you. I'm giving you the football. I'm just telling you that right now. Um, So we've touched on, too, a little bit as we come up here um, towards the end of our time together. We talked a few different times about ALS. Um, how can how can people support you know ALS research and I know you've been connected with I you know I was just doing some different research on things like snowmobile rides up here and those kinds of things around around ALS but um, yeah how how can how can people support and, and be a part of a, a movement to to find a cure? The beauty of the bucket ice bucket challenge was pretty amazing because it it made it it, it made people aware of ALS which has been on a back burner. All the other organizations, American Cancer, American Heart, American Lung, all of those, they've been in the forefront. So that Ice Bucket Challenge really brought ALS to the forefront. And the amazing thing was, I just came across some videos not long ago, the number of people in this, our lovely community, who did the ALS Bucket Challenge on behalf of us. Um, So we have a couple of situations here, in the community um, that are a place to donate and a place to donate your time and that is a fishing tournament and a snowmobile ride but the greatest thing about this money is this first year uh, this last year they have put money towards research which we haven't had before but what's been so great about the people involved with the ALS community is providing support for the family members of those that have ALS. And that's the biggest. Because this is an all-encompassing disease, the respite care is incredible that you could get somebody to come into your home so that you as the caregiver could go live your life a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's and they call it an ALS journey. And I will never forget my husband we had a big brochure or a big book about it. And he said, you know, these people are looking awful happy in, in this book. 
and mm-hmm. he's very prag- he was very pragmatic, and that really bothered him because he knew, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was the beauty of our journey is Jim knew that it was going to end in death. He knew it wasn't going to define him, and he handled it like a champ, of which his three children and myself would have said he would have been grumpy and angry, and not one day was he. It was pretty, it was pretty amazing to watch him go through the, the journey. But like I said, there's these um, organizations that are local and they are doing some really, really great things with trying to get some research. Um, we have an alum, Dante Tomasoni, who just lost his father to ALS, been involved with Minnesota government for years, and he's been very instrumental in getting ALS on the forefront um, in Congress to hear and to put more funding towards towards the the ALS research. Yeah, yeah, well, that's great. And again, would encourage folks to to look for that. They can find these resources pretty regularly. Again, you, know, you search Google and you can find, I'm mm-hmm. sure, all of that, not only in the Duluth region, but wherever folks are listening from. So, yeah, and, and, and his legacy, your husband's legacy, I know is part of that whole attitude and, and, and just exudes through you and, I mean, so many others. Again, I've only been here a couple of months, but I've heard these stories and have been around enough of these stories just to know that. So... Uh, would really encourage people to to look at that. So um, I always want to give time at the end of this. And again, first podcast, so we're kind of learning as we go here, but this has been a great conversation. I wanted to give, you know, the guests to the show an opportunity to ask questions they may have. Um, so I'm going to allow for that to happen, certainly. What questions? I put you in the hot seat for the last, you know, almost 50 minutes. What do you have for me? I have one, um, and it's I want to know what you wanted to be when you were nine. What did you want to grow up and be? Yeah, you know, I, for me, I, I think similar to you, I didn't set up school and things in the backyard, but I, I, I've always wanted to help people. <laughs> and, and again, widely defined. I didn't know how, right? I mean, I, I, th- I, w- I was an education major. Myself in school started off an education major and then kind of fluttered around a little bit. Again, being a first-generation college student, I really didn't have an idea, right? I went to, I went to school to play sports. Um, I was recruited for football and wrestling and, um, and, and ended up getting a degree along the way, finding my wife along the way. You know, we met my sophomore year, her junior year, and I mean, the rest is history from there. So, but I think that notion of helping people, I think growing up in a single-parent family, you know, and, and being the oldest, like I, we had to help ourselves sometimes, and it's not because my mom didn't want to. She was working. Um, she had to work. Uh, she had two boys to support, right? So um, I think that notion of helping people, and that's carried through too. I mean, I talked I talked to your team. You heard me give, you know, the talk to your team earlier in the year in that statement of, I'm going to treat you like one of my own, right? I'm going to support. I'm going to advocate. I mean, a lot of the things that you do for them, me trying to do from afar, right? And I think over time, you know, and again, it didn't happen for you day one either here, right? I mean, you've built, again, this legacy. You're, on, I would say, on the Mount Rushmore of, of St. Scholastica, but... You know, just really helping people, I think. I grew up in farm families, too, or around farm families. So, you know, there was always an aspect of respecting the land, giving back to the land, too, that was there. I never really thought I would be a farmer, mostly because it was hard work. Um, I think everybody should have to work on a farm. I Just the work ethic. <laughs> you know, I don't complain about long days because I bailed hay. <laughs> End of story, right? So, yeah, I think, you know, just just helping people. There wasn't a specific career, but I just... I think um, my wife has said once that um, I have a genuine caring heart, and that's one of the best, I think, um, 
things anybody's ever said about me, and that's what I try to do. I mean, I said to you, too, I was listening to folks talk about you at the Hall of Fame banquet a couple weeks ago, and I came up to you kind of a couple days after, and I said, I want people to talk about me the way they talk about you. Um, for me, that's my, those are my trophies, right? Those are my conference championships when people say that they feel a genuineness. And, um, but that's why we choose places like Scholastica, right? I mean, because that's, that's a fit, right? That's a fit and what we do, what we do. So I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. And your hard work is not going unnoticed. And I think that says a lot. And I agree about the farming. My first assistant of 20 years was raised on a dairy farm. Mm -hmm. And her work ethic to this day is bar none amazing. And I always remember thinking, we need more farm kids on our team yeah, because yeah, of that work ethic. Yeah. So it, it is, it is that. But we see you so much around our our community and involved and, and that's going to be huge. That's going to be your legacy yeah. is that you've been involved and your Waffle Wednesdays and now your hour from Tower. Yeah. I think the creative side of you and mm -hmm. that's kind of the beauty. Like I said, I, I don't have, I have confidence and I have attitude. I don't have creativity. I don't have a lot of talent. <laughs> But that's what's the beauty that I see in you, Nate, is you have the work ethic you, and you have the creativity. And the two combined will just do great things, I think, for the college in general, but specifically the areas that you are overseeing. I think already they've been impacted. Well, and I, and I appreciate all of that very, very much. You know, I think we, in our the professions we've chosen, right, There's I think there's a responsibility for us to create good human beings, Right, the world needs good human beings, and um, I, I think what I've recognized is we've been given this gift. I was just telling the story the other day. You know, I, I started off doing this work at my alma mater, and I thought there's no way I could do this work anywhere else. I mean, this is my place, right? How could I talk about somewhere else with the same passion of my place? And um, went in after I changed. I became a director of admission, left the, my, my my place. Uh, and I sat in my, my um, VP's office who hired me, and I said, I think I made the worst decision of my life six months into the new job, right? And, um, you know, he said, tell me a little bit more about that, right? And, well, you know, I'm just, you know, there's these challenges, and, you know, and some people aren't doing what I want them to do, and it was my first time leading a, mm -hmm. a team. And, you know, he helped me through some of that. But then he said something that always stuck with me. He said, you know, Nate, I went to Carroll University just outside of Milwaukee. And um, he said, Nate, for, for, for our students, this is their Carroll. And immediately it snapped with me. Like, yeah, for me, I had my place. For the students that are here, this is their place. And I need to nurture and respect that, but mostly create an environment where we can send good people out into the world so they can be great, not only employees, but you know, family members and, and partners and all of those things to folks. So Absolutely. You know, we really just been, we've been given such a gift. And I, I think all of this, like even this podcast, again, a little bit it's self-serving for me because again I love people's stories and for me it's a way to get to know the community better and share that community with the world whoever wants to listen so some people may have turned this off after minute two I don't know but some may be riveted and and, and will come back but um but right back at you I just try to keep up to you coach yeah, that's what I try to do so in my work but yeah. thank you but anything else other things for you uh, no, I was thinking a, a couple of things that you had asked, and I think about we, um, 
went right shortly after I got hired on the administrative side, we were given a Bush grant and we had three staff members and three faculty members that had to spend a week together. And out of that Bush grant and that time that we spent together, we used to have separate um, staff and faculty announcements. We had separate staff and faculty luncheons at the end of the year. And so we did some of this work to really bring us together. And that's one of the highlights when I think back on my time here was that Bush grant and us bringing faculty and staff together for the same reason. And that is to, you know, give the the, the world more saints, yeah, that's you know? Right. So yeah. that was kind of it. When I think back on one of those defining moments, it was really an amazing thing to see the two, you know, the academic side and the staff side come together and share a common a commonality of our student. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to end it. So, Coach, I really appreciate the time today. I mean, again, being the first guest, you're my you're my guinea pig, and I couldn't th- th- think of a better person to have done that with. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you for being here, and thanks for all you do and um, and and all you will do for the community and everything else. So, thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an Hour from Tower podcast from historic Tower Hall on the beautiful campus of the College of St. Scholastica. Tune in next week for another great episode, and thanks for joining us.